you know, in almost everything that we do in life, there's expectations, things that are expected of us, whether it's family or work or sports or really whatever. There are certain expectations placed on those who participate as the people of God. It's no different. God has expectations. He has desires for the people of his church. He wants to see us honor him with our lives. You know, when I went to Talbot Seminary, the the first week I was there, I was given what's called a student handbook. And in that student handbook, it was 65 pages of expectations. And I had to sign on the dotted line, right? It was things like that I should and shouldn't do, like I shouldn't be dishonest. I'm in a seminary. I shouldn't cheat on tests, things like that. And other things I should do, I should be a man of integrity and those kind of things. Well, God has no problems in telling us that he has expectations for us. The problem is with us. When we hear, I have certain things I want you to do, we instantly, particularly in the American culture, because we want to do it our way. We're independent. We're autonomous. We're going to make it happen the way that we want to make it happen. But God tells us in Scripture, no, I want it to happen my way. And the reason I share all this in today's passage, which is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Peter is going to encourage the people he's writing to to understand that God has certain expectations for them. You see, Peter's writing to a people who had been persecuted for their faith. Nero, the emperor Nero, set Rome on fire. The people in Rome got really mad. They get mad at Nero. Nero goes, wait a minute, the Christians did it. They all scatter because persecution happens in the church. So Peter then writes this letter to them to encourage them, to help them understand that in their suffering, there is a great God of grace. But this God of grace wants us to act a certain way, to have certain characteristics that model and show the world that we are truly His. What we will learn today in today's message is that the Word of God has these expectations, but will we listen to them and obey them? And the question that we'll answer today is, what does God expect from the people of His church? What does God desire from us? Let's look at the text. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit and be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, And establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing we see is that God expects his children to be people that are humble. God expects his people to be humble. God's children are called to have an attitude of humility. 
But this is not something, guys, we can just manufacture, particularly here in America, because we're not, we don't even, as soon as we say, I'm going to be humble, we just fell into pride, right? But God is a God who humbles people because he's a God of grace. He wants to pour out his grace and he pours it out on a humble people. So Peter here begins with younger men. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. He's speaking to the younger men within the church so that you understand it. In first Peter, chapter five, verses one through four, Peter wrote to the elders of the church and he says, you have a, a great chief shepherd and be submitted to him. Now in verse five, he's saying, and likewise, you younger men, you be submitted to the elders that I've placed over you. And here's here's the way it works. We have a chief shepherd who's Jesus Christ. And he calls certain men to lead the church, certain men that he's placed his call on as pastors. And they're to submit to Christ and serve the people. He then calls the people of the church to submit to their leadership and serve one another. And so you have this act of humility within the church. That's God's design. And I think Peter right here, he starts with the younger guys because these are the guys that want to do it their own way. They got lots of energy. They're like, man, I want to lead. I want to do it. And he said, okay, slow down. Be submissive to those that God has placed over you. The word for subject is the Greek word hupatasso, and it literally means to be subject or to be under subordinate to someone else. And then the word presbyteros is the Greek word for elders, and it means an official elder in the church. It means a pastor. And so he's telling these people, these these young men, okay, submit to the leadership that I've placed there for you. For this is my design. Jesus is the chief shepherd. I call people to lead. They serve me. They serve you. You submit to them and serve one another. Perfect design in humility. So Peter begins here with the young men. And the reason he begins with young men, too, is we need to understand with with young people that are new in the faith. Paul says, if you give if you raise them up in leadership too quickly, pride could come in. I want to share that verse with you. It's first Timothy three, six. He says an overseer must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So and that doesn't necessarily mean age. You can be a 40 year old new convert. And if you're brought into leadership too quickly, you can become conceited. And then Peter says, but not just the young men, he says, all of you. Now he's talking to the whole church. And he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So he begins with the young men and now he's talking to all of us. He's saying, hey, I want all of you to be in humble submission to one another, to clothe yourself. And it's the Greek word inkobomai. And it literally means to tie an apron around yourself. It's really the picture of Jesus, isn't it? When he took the towel and he draped it around himself. And then he washed the disciples' feet. That's the picture we should have of humility. It's being a servant to one another. Now, why would he write this? He tells us because God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives great grace to the humble. And so Peter is sending out a little warning here, a shot across the bow. He's saying, guys, be humble. Because by the way, God is opposed to the proud. Humility is a willingness to put others ahead of ourself. It's a willingness to subject ourselves lowly and let somebody else lead. It's a willingness to serve someone else 
when our culture says, no, you be in charge, you be the one, right? But God says, no, serve. You be the one that serves. D. Martin joins, joins, uh, Lloyd Jones put it like this. He said, I suggest that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. Confidence in God, no confidence in myself. And the reason is because God is opposed to the proud. Pride is the idolatrous worship of ourselves. It is the thought that somehow I am the commander of my own ship. I have made it happen. I've done it all. My success is my success. And what it does, it goes all the way back, even before the garden. The pride of Satan, that sin. Satan, listen to Isaiah. Satan said this in Isaiah 14, 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Adam and Eve, their sin was a sin of pride. They were tempted and then Eve goes, did God really say that? I don't think so. That looks good to me. She already sinned before she ever ate that fruit. Same thing happened to Adam. It was pride. Pride is at the root of sin and God is opposed to it. And Peter is sending a warning to these people and he's saying, watch it. Because God is opposed to the proud. This is how C.S. Lewis said. He said, pride is at the center of all immorality, the utmost evil, and it leads to every other vice. And there's two kinds of pride, if you kind of think it through. One is boasting, right? I am a very successful man. I've got it together. I've done it all, right? I'm really good. I work hard. I've climbed up the corporate ladder. I made this happen. Look at my kingdom. Wow. Boasting. By the way, the devil is a boaster. He's a roaring lion. He boasts. That's boasting pride. But there's another kind of pride that's harder to see, and it's self-pity. See, boasting is the kind of pride that is the pride of success, but self-pity is the pride that you have in suffering. And it kind of goes like this. It's, you don't want people to think that you're helpless But you want people to think that you're a hero in your suffering. That, oh, you suffer so well. Yes, I do. (laughs) Right? And so you got to watch pride in both areas, right? You're doing really good, you got to watch it. But even when things aren't going so good, you got to watch it because our hearts are bent. They're broken and they tend to lean towards pride. But you can have victory over pride. And victory comes when you give God his rightful place. Lord, I see that you gave me the gifts to be successful. You made me the way I end with the certain gifts and whatever I do. And that's how I know how to do it because you gave it to me. And you opened the door so I could have that job, have this family, have this church. God, you were so good. I give you praise and glory. Or in suffering, Lord, I I realize that you are sovereign. And this suffering is from your hand. It's not by a mistake. I am your child. I know that you love me, but I also know, Lord, that you place suffering in my life for a purpose. It tests me. It preserves me. It helps me. And I give you glory in it with joy in the suffering. Oof. The boasting one's a little easier to handle. The suffering one's tough, isn't it? Yeah. But both are pride. Because when we start to lean, God's opposed to you. 
But he gives grace, great grace to the humble. And so that's my encouragement to you. Boasting pride is self-sufficient. Self-pity pride sounds self-sacrificing. Both God is against. But then God comes in and says, but I give grace, grace to the humble. Since our culture is all about self-esteem, for Americans, this is a tough one for us, right? There are certain cultures, actually, they're they're very used to being humble. I think of Japan as one. They're very humble people. You'll always see them serving other people. But our culture, no, man, you stand on your own two feet. You make it happen. And so it's it's a little tougher for us. But God says, no, don't worry about it. I'm going to humble you (laughs) because I want to give you grace. I'm all about grace. So I'm going to bring humility to your life. And that's what God does to us, doesn't he? He begins to break through our hard hearts and he begins to reveal to us that we are so lost in sin. That, man, we are captured by our own sin and we can't get out. But God comes in and he basically reveals himself to us, shows us our need. And suddenly he opens our eyes and we're humbled and we respond in faith And now he pours out his grace when you respond in the reality of who you are and who God is. And he gives great grace to you as he humbles you. But it's always for a purpose to pour out grace. Because true humility is the fruit of a changed life. It's the fruit from a life that's been changed through the gospel. Those that don't have Christ cannot be humble. Because pride keeps getting in the way. But those that have been broken in Christ have real humility. Because we see ourselves as we are. And we recognize the goodness of God. James put it this way. He says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And so it's putting God in his rightful place. And then Peter goes on. And he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. That he may lift you up in the due time in verse 6. He says, hey, humble yourselves under God's hand. This is giving God his rightful place of sovereignty, his hand. His hand is what makes everything happen, that he may lift you up in due time. When you're suffering, you need to understand that that God will allow you to suffer as long as it takes. As long as it takes, because he doesn't waste pain. And for some of us, we're hard-headed. We don't quite get it, and he just allows it to go on. But it's in his timing. It's for a season. For some, that season may be all life, your whole life. But then he says you'll be exalted. Either way, whether it's your whole life or for a season, he gets glory. He gets glory. And we need to understand that, that we have a loving God that allows it in our lives. And everything falls through his hands. There's nothing by mistake. And I know that there are many of you here that are suffering maybe physically, spiritually, mentally. Maybe financially, relationally, whatever our issue is, we submit to the mighty hand of God. Understanding that in due time, he will be the one that exalts us. And how do we do that? Peter tells us that we cast all our anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. You've been casting your anxieties on the Lord lately? Or are you a good American? I'll handle it. I'll medicate it. I'll do whatever I can, but I'm not going to cast it to a loving God. Do you understand when he says he cares for you? He sees your need and he's calling us literally to let it go, literally to push it 
off on him. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself, right? Go to him. Cast your burden on him, and he gives you a little teeny yoke. Beak, puts it on you. It's easy. You need to cast your burdens. Why? Because he cares. There's a deep love and affection that God has for his people. I was thinking of an example of this, and, and, I, and the only one I could think of humility, I think it was around 1996. I went to a harvest crusade, and I invited my boss. And a, and a gentleman, he was an elderly man, got up, and he gave a testimony. And he was somewhere in his 70s, and he goes, I've been in my church for over 40 years. I am an elder. I'm a successful businessman. I have a large family. I am an upstanding citizen in my community. Last year, he said, I came to the Harvest Crusade with my church. He goes, and as I was sitting there and Greg Glory began to preach, I suddenly realized I was in real trouble. I had been living in religion and not real faith. That I had been doing this God thing by the things that I performed and not the true saving faith of trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. And as Greg began to preach more and more, he said, I felt so convicted. He goes, but I had a problem. My pastor was sitting next to me, all the deacon board, all the people there, my family's on this side. What am I going to do? And the call for him to come forward came and he stood up. He humbled himself and he walked. That's humility, guys. It's humility. It's a recognition of our need. It's a recognition like, uh uh-oh, I'm a sinner, but I have a God who cares for me, a God of grace. He'd been doing Christianity in the flesh, but now he was living in the spirit, is the idea. Romans 8 and 9 puts it like this, 8, 8 and 9. says, and those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. However, if you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, indeed, if the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. This man was humbled, but now he was a child of God. That's the idea. God expects his people to be humble. First thing. Second thing. God expects his people to be watchful. Watchful. The children of God must always remain alert for the enemy of our soul. He seeks to harm us. The devil doesn't like us. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. He is going to harm you if he can. This is a warning. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Peter begins here. He says, be sober of spirit and be on alert. Sober and alert. Sober is to control one's thought process. It means to be, have a clear mind. To be ready, be clear thinking. It's to not be um, under the control of any foreign substance. And that day was probably wine. Today it's drugs, alcohol, whatever. But to have a clear thinking mind, that's the first thing, to be sober. The other one is to be alert, to be watchful. And the idea is if you're thinking of an enemy, you're on a hill, you're in a turret, whatever, you're looking for the enemy, you're watchful. This is the idea that he's saying. You're alert, you're watchful. Okay. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone who he can devour. I don't know if you know this, but the devil hates you. Absolutely hates the people of God. 
He hates his church. He hates anything about God. And he has one design to cause you to fail. He wants to sideline you, make you ineffective, hurt you so that you are ineffective for the kingdom of God. So we have an enemy that we fight against and he uses some weapons. His main one is doubt, also discouragement and deceit. Three D's doubt, discouragement, deceit. Those are his main weapons. He is a liar. Little lies, big lies. He's a liar. And he wants to fool you into thinking that he has control, that he has so much power that he can actually control your life. But you must understand that in Christ, Christ has your soul. The devil has no power to capture your soul. So what does he want to do? He wants to fool you with influence. He wants to somehow influence your life in a way that will knock you off being effective for the kingdom of God. Doesn't have to deal with you. You're in the corner kind of like, man, I'm all, I have problems and I just don't know what to do and God would hate me and I don't want... You're taking care of devils on to somebody else, man. But when you're bold and you know what you believe and you're firm in God's word and you know that you're born again and that you're going to persevere to the end and that there's glory waiting, you're a danger to the devil because you're going to tell somebody. You're going to encourage others. You're going to be praying. You're going to be a man or woman of God. And the devil doesn't like you. So what is he going to do? He's going to try to figure out a way to get in and cause harm. Now, Peter says he's a roaring lion. A roaring lion. Now, he's boastful. I think that's what he means by roaring. He speaks big. He says loud things. A lot of power and passion. But they're lies. They're not real. But he's a lion. In that he wants to hurt you. And the idea, you ever watch any of those animal shows? And, and, when, and you know, you, the lions are coming and the animals are running. And what happens? You always got a couple stragglers, right? The lions get that one, the weak ones. Well, that's what he's hoping you're going to become as a straggler. Oh, I don't know if I can trust God's word. And I don't really like church that much. And I'm going to kind of hang on the fringe over here. And I'll, poof, gotcha. That's the way the devil works. He wants to cause doubt in your life. He wants you to be discouraged. He wants to sideline you to the point where you no longer even know what you believe in. Boom. He's got you in his grips. Now, if you're a true born again Christian, he's, he's a lion without teeth. Understand? You give him the ability to do that. You need to be very careful because his desire is to hurt you. Now, <clears throat> it says there that he's a slander. Devil means slanderer. And that's what he does. He slanders the name of God. He slanders your name. He wants to bring shame upon you and the Lord. That's his whole idea. And there's certain things he wants to do. He wants to steal your eternal significance in your life. He just wants to put you to the side. He desires to hurt you and kill you. And he also seeks to destroy your relationships, your church, anything you're involved in. But this is what we need to understand. In Ephesians it says, do not give the devil a foothold. We have a victory already done in Christ. The victory's over. What the devil needs to do is he needs to somehow make your life so miserable that you actually believe that you don't even know what's going on, that you're not part of the kingdom. He wants you just to be an ineffective believer, not used of God. And so if you'll turn with me to Ephesians, I want to show you this. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And it's going to go through and I'm going to show you some weapons that we have to fight our enemy. Many of you know this, the armor of God. And I'm going to do this fairly quickly. Paul is going to mention in Ephesians 6.12, 
We're going to start with 10 and go through, but I'm going to read 12 first because our fight, it's not against a human foe. Okay, it's not against flesh and blood. And so Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness and against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He gives ranks to them. And there's four of them. The rulers and authorities, these are demons that are appointed by Satan over certain geographical areas of the kingdom of darkness. Powers are a group of demons that seek to have power in individual lives. World forces of this darkness, these are demons assigned to men and women in leadership to influence them for the kingdom of darkness. And the last one, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. These seem to be spirits that want to bring people into some kind of a cult or false religion. These are different forces that the enemy uses, different tactics, different ranks of demons. And what Peter says is that we must resist him in verse 9, full of faith. We resist the devil. And so how do we do that? We do it in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. So look at 10 through 13 first. And it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Again, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to stand, resist in the evil day, and having done everything, stand firm. This is what Paul says here. He says, stand, resist, stand. Stand, resist, stand. You stand in the truth of what Christ has done. You stand in the truth of God's word. The devil attacks, you resist. You stand again in the truth of God's word. You stand in who you are in Christ. And how do we do that? He tells us in verses 14 through 18. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then in verse 18, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And so what he does, he lays out six truths. The first one is gird your loins with truth or the belt of truth. And we need to understand that that he's he's basically modeling this after a Roman soldier. And so a Roman soldier, he kind of had like a robe. And then over that, he had chain mail that covered his breast. And then he would, or we call it a breastplate, and he would take a belt and it would lock in the breastplate and he'd take the little rope thing and tuck it in the belt. Now he had free movement of his legs and on the belt he had all his weapons. He was set. So the belt of truth holds everything together. We have a belt of truth. You're either going to believe truth as what you feel or you're going to believe truth as what is expounded in God's word. And my encouragement to you, if you want to fight against this enemy, you know this word well. Because this will help you tremendously. The belt of truth, the truth that God has come in power through his son, saved his people. He died for you. He rose again. We have a place guaranteed in heaven. These truths are a must that we must have to fight this belt of truth. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. Do you understand that that you don't stand on your own righteousness? You have a righteousness problem. We need someone else's righteousness, and that's why Christ came. He was perfect. He lived that life that we could not live. We get His righteousness. That's why He went to the cross when we receive Christ. He gives us His life, His righteousness. 
we give him our sin. He takes our sin upon himself and we get his righteousness. And that righteousness is a protection on our heart. And the devil comes in with the law. You're not really a Christian. I'm saved in the blood of Christ. He paid the price for me. It's his righteousness that I stand on. Yes, I am. It's a truth that we stand on the breastplate of righteousness and it guards our heart. And then the third one is the sandals of peace. The sandals of peace. He says, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now you understand that a Roman soldier had these shoes and they had spikes on the bottom of them, kind of like cleats. And when an enemy would come and push against them, they just plant their feet. It would lock into the ground and they couldn't be pushed back. They always moved forward. And that's what we have with the gospel. We're always moving forward with the gospel of peace. The peace of Christ guards our hearts. It is the reality of who Jesus is. He's God, the son. He lived a perfect life. He died a death for us. He rose again. That is the gospel. And we have that both as an offensive weapon. When we see the enemy around, we offensively and also a defensive weapon. It protects our heart. And also, he says, you have the shield of faith, the shield of faith. This verse 16 says, in addition, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, some say because he says above all that this is the most important one. I'll just say that it's very important because they're all important. But there's an acrostic for faith that I think is really good. The F stands for forgiveness of sin. You are forgiven in Christ. The A stands for the assurance of your salvation. You are assured that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He begins the work. He finishes the work. What he starts, he finishes. I, identification with God's family. You're not in this alone. We do this as a church. We fight the battle together. T, triumph over Satan. Victory happened on the cross. The battleground, although we're in a battle, the victory's already done. We're just fighting the skirmishes until Christ comes back. The last one is H is for hope of deliverance. We have a guaranteed hope. Literally, Peter says you have an inheritance waiting for you. He says kept for you in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. The shield of faith. The fifth thing is the helmet of salvation. Your mind needs to be clear. The helmet of salvation is an understanding of our salvation in Christ. It's not what you've done to earn it. It's what he did. It protects our mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and understand that salvation is a complete work in Christ and it's a gift of God. And the sixth item is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's also both offensive and defensive. We attack with the Word. We resist and defend with the Word. Remember Jesus When he went into the desert and he was tempted three times, what did he do? When the devil brought an accusation, brought a temptation, he fought back with the word of God. It's interesting here that the word for word here is the word rhema. And it means a word for an immediate need. It's the memorized word of God. Why do you think we have memory verses once a week or once, once a month here? Because you fight with the memorized word of God. The Holy Spirit can't, he doesn't take something out there kind of floating around and implant it. You need to know it and then he pulls it from within. It's the memorized word of God, the rhema, the word. He uses that as a sword. Okay? So we got those weapons, six of them. We got the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the, the shield. We've got the helmet and the sword. We've got all these different weapons But now we need the power, and that's why in verse 18, 
He says, praying with petition in the spirit. Prayer. The power comes and we ask God. He's given us the weapons. Now we ask him for the strength to do it. And this is why Peter, back to verse 9 in 1 Peter, says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not, we're not alone, guys. We're not. All of us fight the fight together. All of us fight this fight. And we fight it from a position of victory. Now, I don't, know, I don't know if this was the devil, but something happened last week that I want to kind of show you the schemes of the devil. I got my diploma, right? Graduated in December, I got it. I said, okay, I want to put it in a frame. My wife and I are Bed Bath & Beyond. Oh, cool, a frame. I buy the frame and I put the diploma in. The diploma's 8 by 10. This one's made for an 8 and a half, 11. Ah, so now I got to go get the little insert piece that fits in you know, an 8 by 10. Ah, I'll go to Aaron Brothers. That's on Monday, my day off. My dog has an ear infection. Okay, let me take him first to the vet and then I'll go to Aaron Brothers. So I take my dog and now I go over to Aaron Brothers and my dog's a 125 pound lab sitting in the back seat. And so I go into Aaron Brothers and I buy this little insert, 25 bucks for this thing, right? Okay, no problem. I come out, put it on the front seat and I look, wow, Lee's sandwiches. Ah, oh, it's lunchtime. Okay, so I get out and I buy a sandwich. Five minutes later, I'm back. My dog's sitting on the front seat. He sat on my little frame insert. He broke it. I'm like, oh. So I pick it up and I go back into Aaron Brothers, the guy that just waited on me 10 minutes earlier, right? And I go, man, I said, I need to get another one of these. And he takes it and he goes, wow, did I sell this to you like this? You know what I heard in my brain? Tell him yes. <laughs> and I said, no, man, my dog sat on I need to buy another one. That little frame insert cost me 50 bucks. Now, I don't know if that's the enemy, but that's the way the enemy works. He likes to bring in subtle little lies. Tell him, yeah, no big deal. It's, you, know, you deserve it. <laughs> okay, we need to be watchful. That's the second thing. So God expects his people to be humble. God expects his people to be watchful. The last thing is God expects his people to be hopeful. Hopeful. Look at verses 10 and 11. God has given us a hope that will never die. It is a secure hope that is, that is secure in him. And I want to show and kind of flesh that out for you. Verses 10 and 11 says, And after you, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion. And, and the NIV says to him be glory and dominion. But I looked at the Greek, the word dominion, so I didn't see glory. But to him be dominion forever and ever. Okay, so after you've suffered for a little while, Peter's writing to these people that are suffering. God will bring suffering into your life. And sometimes within that suffering, what sustains us? Hope. When everything else fails, we know we have a God who does not fail. But our hope is not based upon hope or an emotion or a feeling, but based on the truth, the promises of God. Again, back to the word of God. We have to be so secure in this that we know that we know. And we have a God that will never fail us. And if we're going through suffering and we're really struggling, whether it be a job or family or a child or whatever it is, we trust him with all our heart because he cares for us. He already told us that. So Peter tells them that we have a God, a God of all grace. Hebrews says that we have a, a, a God of grace that will help you in time of need. James says... 
that he's a God who gives more grace, which means like abundant grace. So we have God who wants to pour out grace upon it. How does he do this? He does it through Christ. Look at the text. He says that he will perfect us through who? Through Christ. Bring us to wholeness, complete in Christ. He'll also confirm us. That means to set fast. That means immovable. He also will strengthen us. He'll make us sturdy in the fight. He will establish us. He will lay a foundation that is not moved. Why? Because he's the cornerstone. It's all based on him. He does it. That is our immovable foundation. And we will not get knocked over or taken out. We can have hope. We have a promise of an eternal hope. And I have time this time because I cut the first part short and I'm going to share the verses that I didn't share in the first service. This just rocked my world this week, man. This is so good. So I hope you're you're blessed by this. Our hope is not based on a fuzzy feeling. But honestly, I think where most people in America end up, I just don't feel like God loves me, cares for me, whatever. But the Word of God says it's so deep, so unbelievably deep that He does it all. I want you to turn to Titus, chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. We have a hope based on a God who saves. We have a hope based on a God who saves. Paul explains the idea of our salvation, our future hope, our keeping now so clearly in these verses. It's rock solid. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Now it begins with the natural man, who we are without Christ. It says, and at one time you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's the picture of us without Christ. That's who we are without Jesus. We are enslaved to sin absolutely can't get out we're haters of others haters of god but we love ourselves right that's a picture of the unregenerate man and then i love it in verse four through seven he says but when the kindness and the love of our god our savior appeared he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done but because of his mercy He saved us through the washing of rebirth by renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I'm going to show you those real quick. There's seven things. God locks us in on salvation. He begins with verse 3 saying, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> Man, you're foolish, you're haters, you're disobedient. Ooh, bad. And then he says in verse 4, but. And he begins with, our hope is steadfast because our salvation is based on seven secure aspects of God. And the first one is, is that we have a God of kindness in verse 4. We can have hope because we have a God who is kind. We have a God who absolutely cares for us. He's not a tormenting God. He's not a God in the distance that we're trying to appease. He is a God who has kindness, compassion towards hurting people. And he desires to know you and for you to be in his kingdom. And it is because of his kindness that you are saved. Right? We have a kind God. And he doesn't start, stop there. He says, and we have a loving God. We have a God of kindness and we have a loving God. 
a God who is full of love and compassion. And that word for love is not the word lagos, which or I mean, um, agape. Normally we think that the word love is the agape love. This is actually the word for love is philanthropia. And what that means is to show compassion or pity on someone because you have a strong affection for them. We have a God who is kind to us. And then what does he do? He shows us compassion because he has a strong affection for us. And why does he do that? Because he's a God of mercy. A God of mercy. Look at verse 5. It says, he saved us. That's huge. Not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We deserve judgment. That's it. When Adam and Eve sinned, God should have annihilated mankind. Done. Why didn't he? He's a God of kindness. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. We deserve wrath. We get mercy. He's merciful. Kindness, love, mercy. And then the fourth one in verse 5, we have a God of regeneration. A God who changes things. Verses 5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He changed us. Could you imagine if God saved you but left you the way that you were? Brutal. We'd We'd be in such misery. But what does He come in? He comes and changes the heart. He gives us a new heart. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. That's why in 2 Corinthians it says you are a new creation. He's a God of regeneration. He's a God that changes us from death to life. He's a God of kindness, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of change, of regeneration. And he's also a God who gives his spirit. He tells us in verse 5, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We don't do this on our own. He gives us his spirit. He implants it in us so that we can say no to sin and have victory in this life. He is a helper, a comforter. He saved us. And he keeps giving and giving and giving. And not only that, he gives us his son. Look at verse 6. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, He saved us. He initiated it. He made it happen. He's a God who is kind. He is a God who's loving, who's merciful, who regenerates us, who gives us the Holy Spirit, and God sent His Son. Without His Son, the others wouldn't apply, but He did send His Son, and He died. He lived that perfect life. He gives us His life. He rose again. We have hope in His resurrection, which secures our resurrection. He sent us His Son. And then he wraps it up and ties a nice little bow on it in verse 7. And he says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He poured out his grace upon us. He gave us the free gift of his son. Why? So we'll be an heir, a guarantee. You know what a will is? It guarantees that certain things that you have will go on to those after you. We have an inheritance, a will in heaven We will persevere. Seven things that secure our hope. The kindness of God. The love of God. The mercy of God. The regeneration of God. The Holy Spirit of God. The Son of God. And the grace of God. We're not going anywhere. We are heaven bound. And when the afflictions come, Peter says stand and resist. Because we have a God who saves. 
You know, I read an article by Oz Guinness, and he's speaking about a Japanese. I thought you'd love this, Chester. It's a Japanese haiku poet. His name was Issa. Now, Issa had a really difficult life. When he was a child, um, his mother died at a young age. And then he had tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in his life. But the one that really hit him, he had a young daughter and she was killed. And so what he did is he went to his Zen Buddhist master and he asked him to help him. And the master said this. He says, the world is an illusion like the morning dew and our lives will evaporate with the rising sun. How's that hope for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're here today, but <laughs> there's really no tomorrow. So, man, tough it out. It's, it's OK. You know. So what Issa does, he goes back and he writes a poem. And I want you to hear the poem. He says, the world is due. The world is due. And yet and yet. So this is what Os Guinness says. He says, here's the truth that should make us stand still in our tracks, but it is expressed in such distilled beauty that the fragrance of its pathos becomes such a jewel of poetry that its lesson is easily lost. Issa, the orthodox Zen believer, must say life is only due. But Issa, the father, the husband, the human being, with his agonized grief and tortured love can only cry out into the unfulfilled darkness where Zen sheds no light and say, and yet, there's something there. I don't know what it is. We know. We have a hope that is immovable. It is secure in Christ. It's not going anywhere, and you aren't either if you are in Christ. This is the call of the Word of God. And so Peter With passion, at the very end, he claims this, and this is the end of the message. To Jesus, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we see that in your word we are called to be hopeful. It's not a hope on ourselves that we tough things out. It's not an and yet hope. It is a hope that is secured in Christ. Lord, you are a God of kindness and of love and mercy. You are a God who changes us, who gives us your Holy Spirit. You poured out your Son for us on our behalf, and you poured out your grace. Lord, where else can we go? We have you and you alone, and that is where we'll stand. In Jesus' name, amen.